Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning. Hey, everybody. We're getting ready to start a new series today. But before we do that, I've got a question for you. Did you appreciate Kirsten Carter leading us in worship this morning like a quarter as much as I did? Kirsten, thank you so much for being with us. I have a, I have a little bit of a, of a mini existential crisis happening in real time because I have a phone full of texts saying, hey, could we just do that again instead of, you know, you? So, so I hear you. I, I don't disagree. <laughs> We are so excited to be uh, on the road to being back together, figuring this all out. As so many things are different, how comforting is it that Jesus and the body of Christ are the same? And to be with our elders, seeing so many folks I love that are a part of like the fabric of my life who I haven't seen in, in four months, I was actually overcome with emotion being the greeter this morning. I was not expecting such an emotional experience, but I can't wait to see all of you. So thanks for worshiping with us from home, from your phone, wherever you are. In fact, I'd love to hear some of the more creative ways that you've worshiped. Somebody told me they worshiped on a paddleboard. Uh, I hope you have the waterproof case on your phone or you're better at standing on that thing than I am. Um, Some have worshiped with us from the mountains, from other states because you're home, like living in your folks' basement or wherever you are. Man, we are a family and we're a family because of you. So thank you so much for worshiping with us. Uh, this morning and can't wait to begin the process next week of being back together. But you know what? Uh, I have good news. Eddie Montoya is in the house. And what, if you go to the original Greek, what it actually, I think, um, most reliably tells us that Jesus said is that where two or more are gathered and Eddie, there I am with you. <laughs> You know, I, I have um, been, I've had the privilege in my life of growing up as a church kid and as a church mutt. Our church being a church mutt is probably in some ways a reflection of my experience. It's, it's somewhat autobiographical because that's what I've known. I've seen church done this way and that. My father was in the military. We moved around and we found the best of what's around, my parents did, for us to experience Jesus and Christian community. And I've... I, that deeply ingrained in me is this value that if they're for Jesus and the Word of God, we're for them. They're for us. We're on the same team. And at the same time, growing up, I've had this experience that there are a lot of different primaries or close secondary. You know, Jesus being primary and then close second would be organs, pews, the, the furniture in the church, things that nobody would come out and say. They probably didn't put it in their governmental documents or the vision on the wall in the fellowship hall. But the, the, the culture says that what's a close second is something to do with our tradition, right? And I, I have taken that all in. Sometimes it's gotten deep into me, I confess. When I was in college, I found a church when I first 
started going to church after that brief window where I was saying, I'm not going to go to church. This is my one time of my life to do what I want to do. And then I realized halfway into the first semester that what I wanted to do was go to church. So I went to, to church with um, a student who had invited me and had a car. So he drove me to his church and I came into the life of this church for a semester in the middle of a culture war. Took me like seven minutes to discover what was going down. There was tension that you could cut with a knife. The room was thick with it. And the, the issue at hand was drums. Drums. I'm not kidding. That's not actually a joke. It was the issue. Like, the, there was this new worship music leader who uh, had brought a drum set. And it wasn't even like that. I mean, there was no Isai up there like doing this and twirling the drums. It was like barely drum. It was like two drums. And they were like... But there was the, it wasn't even the sound. The drums could have been muted. It was the presence of drums, which caused a, a division in our church because there was this really big organ that was like a small house that you could live a family of five inside of, right, that played music written in the, in the 1700s chiefly. And that was the culture of the church, which is fine. If it's for Jesus, we're for them, right? But there was drums, and the presence of the drums caused such a division in the church that like a third of the church over the course of that year left. And the worship leader ended up getting shown the door for doing something as theologically contentious as bringing drums in. If you've been around the church block for a while, you're no stranger to this phenomenon. Maybe it's instrumentation. Maybe it's furniture. Maybe you were there during the season when the new pastor wanted to take the pews out and bring in seats, and civil war ensued. I've seen church done a lot of ways. Cool, young, partisan. A lot of ways the church has been packaged to be Jesus our way. And the messaging is, we're good with you if you can fit into that paradigm. And again, if they're for Jesus, it's not intrinsically wrong. It's just perhaps that Jesus envisioned more. Dressy white. You ever been in a church where the rules are made unmistakably clear by the way you're looked at when you walk through the doors? Because you're wearing jeans? Nothing wrong with dressy. Nothing wrong with jeans. Every year around this time, COVID and non, we refocus the church as we prepare for a new year of life, and very often the school year um, ends up orienting kind of our rhythm, right? And so we talk in August just about every year. It's kind of a part of Denver United's liturgy, um, at least in the small L sense. Um, we ask the question, what does it mean to be the church? What exactly did Jesus envision? What did He invite us into? All the more in this time of crisis and challenge, the world around us, us, we're asking, 
What does it mean to be the church? What does it look like when what we've made normal is taken away, the rug pulled right out from under us? Does Jesus' prescription still address the ailments of humanity in 2020? Does Jesus' institution still address the needs of humankind? Is Jesus' way still accessible and relevant? Or do we need to come up with something new? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we're going to begin. In verse 5, the Word of God reads, You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us that, listen, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with Him. We were appointed for salvation, and Jesus died for that salvation to make it possible to show us what it looks like. He died so that whether it's this circumstance or that, whether we're alive or whether we're dead to this body, whether we're on this side of the eternity threshold or whether we're on that side, whether we're in the first century or the 21st century, whether we're meeting together or we're under stay-at-home orders, whether everybody's healthy and we've never even given thought to wearing a mask in public, or whether we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Whatever the circumstance, Jesus died so that one reason, we might live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another. Build each other up just as you have been doing. See, this is about community. This is about what it means to be the church. The letter of 1 Thessalonians, right, is about what it means to be the church. And he says, because of these truths, let's do church. Let's meet together. Let's encourage one another. Let's build each other up all the more under times like those that were distressing, and under times like these that are distressing still. There's a word in this paragraph that is almost singular in New Testament usage. In verse 10 where it says, He died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, whatever the circumstances, we might live together with Him. And that live together word, live together with, there's a lot of different words in Greek that are used to describe living, together, and with. But this word together with, it's the Greek word hama. And that doesn't mean anything itself. It's, it's singularity of usage that I want you to see. It's both an adverb and a preposition. It's the best attempt that we have in English because we don't have a part of speech that's an adverb and a preposition. You're like, man, you're killing me. I know, I'm a grammar nerd. Sorry, this excites me. It should excite you too. Because Jesus cares about the condition of our souls and your grammar. 
So it's an adverb and a preposition. And the best English rendition of it is together with, like the NIV gives it here. There are only a couple of other uses of this word, though the word together, the word with, these are used over and over and over hundreds of times in just the New Testament. Let me show you the distinction of this word and its specialness, what I believe God, through His Word, like a messenger encoded through the generations, uh, has asked us to dig out unearth and apply to our lives. Okay, in what's called the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, all right? The, this word is used to give distinct meaning to an Old Testament idea. Jeremiah 31, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, when I bring them back from captivity, the people of, Ju of Judah and its towns will again say, the Lord bless you. O righteous home, O holy mountain. So who's this about? This is about the covenant community of God's people, Israel, right? The precursor to the church. And they're in captivity in Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. God's talking to them. And he says, the deal is still on. He says, all hope isn't lost. And I want you to remember your peopleness, your togetherness with me. I haven't cut you off, and with one another, though perhaps your love has grown cold, or it's like every person for himself or herself during such difficult times. Townspeople and farmers and shepherds alike will hama in peace. So God's saying, I'm still your God. That thing where I said, hey, I want you to be my people, like everyone's my people, they're all made in my image, but I want you to be my special people. I chose you, I called you out of the world. I want you to show my love and salvation to the nations by being in community with me and being in covenant community with one another. He said, the deal is still on this way and the deal is still on this way. I'm still going to be your God. You're still going to be my, my special people. And townspeople, farmers, and shepherds alike, the people that live in cul-de-sacs and track home communities, and the people on the other side of the tracks, and the people out in the fields who only bathe once every couple of months, and everyone in between, all of you alike will hama, live together with me in peace and happiness. For I've given rest to the weary and joy to the sorrow. At this, I woke up and looked around, Jeremiah says. I love this. My sleep had been very sweet. What a dream he had. That even in the midst of such dark times, the deal is still on. Covenant relationship with our Creator and Redeemer God. And covenant relationship with the family of God. From townspeople to shepherds and everyone in between. The series is called Together. And we're going to take this month and look at what it means to be the church. In the 21st century, in Denver, in the COVID era. What it means to be us is the deal still on. Jesus famously said, I will build 
my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. No promises about your church. But I'll build my church. And hell isn't going to stop me. And racial injustice isn't going to stop me. And the global pandemic isn't going to stop me. And a global economic recession isn't going to stop me. There's nothing on earth that can stop me. You know the only thing that can stop me from building my church? You all. My church. You're the only ones that can stop it. Hell can't stop it. A virus can't stop it. Oppression can't stop it. Only you have the power to do that. I think is what Jesus said. So what I want to know is, what does Jesus' church look like? He said, I'll build my church. I'm in the game of playing the odds. I don't want to build to fail. The Paul, Paul the apostle wrote, if you're going to run, run to win. If you're going to fight, fight to win. We just got a little time. I want to know what Jesus' church looks like. I want to know what church won't fail. So what's Jesus' church? We began this church in our basement 13 years ago this week. Six of the most Caucasian people that you have ever met in northern Colorado Springs, standing in front of my TV with lyrics on it, calling ourselves Denver United. <laughs> but hey, the rent was cheap. Took a few months before people caught up and they're like, you know, love the vision. We're kind of in, don't know if you know this, Colorado Springs. And so here we are, 13 years later, still trying to figure out what is Jesus' church. John 17 is where we began. I want to go back there today. Seems like a good time to go back to the beginning and reorient ourselves. This is the passage that the Lord spoke to Mari and me in birthing Denver United in our hearts. Here's what Jesus said. He's at the end of his life. This is the night before he's crucified. And it's getting real with his disciples and with his Father in heaven. He's praying. Remember, he's in the garden. The disciples are falling asleep. That's the context. Jesus prays for his disciples. And then he says in verse 20, I'm praying not only for these though, but for also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. Hey, everyone say, since we got to everyone, that's us. You're not saying it. I'm definitely preaching better than you're saying that's us. Everybody say, that's us. That's us. He's talking about us. He's praying about us. 2,000 years ago, we made a cameo appearance in the Bible. This is the one place that Scripture records where Jesus expressly prayed for us, the future of the church. And I pray, verse 21, listen, that they will all be holy, just as I am holy. I pray that they will all be well-dressed, just as I am well-dressed, that they will all sit on pews, that they will all sing their music played on instruments that you could house a family of five in that were made in the 1600s. Jesus might have cared about that stuff, but that's not what he prayed. He said, I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. 
May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. I want to take this verse by verse for the next few minutes. So powerful. There's no place where Jesus is more specific, clear, unambiguous, and exacting with exactly what his church looks like, the one he promised that he would build and that nothing on earth would prevail against. Here Jesus gives us a blueprint for at least where that church begins. Verse 21, I pray that they will all be one, Jesus said, just as you, Father, and I are one. Jesus' chief aim, it seems, for His church. It's not that we would be holy. It's not that we would be evangelistic. It's not even that we would be loving. Undoubtedly, He wanted these things, and I'm sure He prayed them at one point or another. But Scripture records one prayer that Jesus prayed for us, and it is that we would be one. Jesus' chief aim for his church is unity. Over the last few months, we've had ample opportunity to put that to the test. We've seen the bonds stretch and strain. I've listened and felt it too, carried it heavy with you, talked, prayed, walked laps and laps around the park, had many Zoom calls with you all. And I hear you. I've heard in the wake of the progression from the death of Ahmaud Arbery to the killing of Breonna Taylor to the killing of George Floyd. Is the church, is this like, are we going to be like all about the black thing now? I've heard you ask, are we going political now? Like, are you going to represent the other side now? I've heard, and I I feel it too. I feel the strain. I feel the strain of broken humanity pulling on the bonds of unity, fledgling bonds as they are. And um, I don't know if it's meaningful to try to address all the good-hearted, humbly asked, and well-meant questions around those things. But let me just tell you this. Look at our name. I know that the challenges are many right now, and I know that lots of us are feeling them and asking questions about the world, and asking questions about our church. And I didn't ask for these circumstances to pile on to each other, for our world to flip upside down, for that to get politicized, and then for the most significant movement in our country for racial justice in our lifetime, most of our lifetime, to happen concurrently. But it did. And We're not going anywhere new. Unity has been, in my understanding, Jesus' primary aim for His church from long before I was thought of and I thought of this church. And it's going to continue to be. This is not where it ends, but friends, 
I believe this is where it begins. The glory, verse 22, Jesus said, that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Have you noticed that Jesus talks about the glory of God in the context of His prayer for us for unity? The glory you've given me, I've given to them that they might be one. They're going to need the glory of God for this thing to happen. It's that contentious. It's that countercultural. It's that hard to do. There is, make no mistake about it, a battle to be won. See what I did there? Battle to be won. I know. It's, it's good. It's, I mean, that's good, right? It's like there's a title, the battle to be won. There is a battle. You're like, you didn't do that. T.D. Jakes did it. You're right. Okay. So I stole it. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if he did, but I'm sure he did, and he probably said it eight times better. That's why Jesus prayed it. Jesus prayed it because he knew what was coming. He knew how hard it is for a group of people who come from the whole spectrum of thought, experience, socioeconomic backdrop, racial and cultural heritage, ethnicity, nationality, just to name a few. Jesus knew all the things that would divide his people. And so he prayed this one thing. This isn't unity, a side skirmish, or a pet project, or a knee-jerk reaction to political pressure. This is, I believe, who the church is asked to be. The battle to be won is positively existential for the church. It is essential to our viability. It's elemental to our existence. There's a phrase in Latin that lawyers use. It is sine qua non. Literally means without which not. Like you can take a lot of different things off and you downgrade or upgrade the product, but you take this thing away and it ceases to be what it is. It's the engine in a car, right? You take the engine out, it's, a, it's an overpriced go-kart, it's the carbonation in a soda, right? It's a Snapple with artificial colors, if you take that out. The sine qua non, without which not. The indispensable, existentially vital component to Jesus' church is unity. Our oneness, listen, is our revelation of the glory of God. I've given them my glory, he said, that they may be one like we're one. Our oneness is our revelation of the glory of God. It's not our goodness. There's a lot of people out there that don't know Jesus on a personal level that are doing more good than you and me combined. It's not our kindness. It's not our personal holiness. It's not our knowledge of the scriptures. These things are good, don't get me wrong. But it is our oneness that is our revelation of the glory of God. That word glory, as some of you may know, 
is doxa. We get doxology from it. And the Greek root is dokio or dokeo. Everyone who tells you they know how a Greek word is pronounced, they're just trying to dazzle you with science. Nobody really knows. Somebody probably knows more than me, but if it's dokio or dokeo or dokio, anyway, you get the point. The root is to think or recognize. It's cognitively oriented, but the word is glory. What do those two have to do with each other? Etymologically, this primarily means thought or opinion. That's the root word of glory. How does that work? right? Especially thought or opinion that's favorable. So like somebody's good opinion of you. And thus, in a secondary sense, conjures reputation or, or praise or honor. So now it's starting to get into the realm. Thus, listen, the doxa of a man is human opinion. It's shifty and uncertain. It's often based on error or at least limited perception. But there is a glory of God that's different. There's a glory of God which must be absolutely true, which must be changeless. God's opinion marks the true value of things, the way they appear to our eternal God-spark being. God's favorable opinion, God's favorable opinion, God's doxa, that's true glory. This contrast is seen well in John 5. Remember, Jesus speaks of the glory that the people were receiving among themselves. Like you could think of it as the lowercase g glory. They're all all glad-handing one another. He says, you're all after the glory that people give rather than the glory that comes from God. The great missionary pioneer and and later in his life, author and theologian, he was a Greek man, Spiros Zahiates. He put it memorably this way. This is a complex subject. This is a, a seminary course. So let me try to boil this down because it's so important for us to see. Glory, he wrote, therefore, is the true apprehension of God or things. The glory of God must mean his unchanging essence. Giving glory to God is ascribing to him his full recognition. The true glory of man, on the other hand, is the ideal condition in which God created man. So it's the imago dei, the reflection of God through us is the true glory of man. This condition was lost, he writes, in the fall and is recovered through Christ and exists as a real fact in the divine mind. The believer waits for this complete restoration. Listen, the glory of God is what he is essentially. The glory of created things, including us, mankind, is what they are meant by God to be, though not yet perfectly attained. The glory you have given me, Jesus said, I've given to them that they may be one even as you and I are one, Father. Well, that even as we are one kind of begs the question, 
how precisely are they one? He's like, just exactly the way that you and I are one, give them that unity. The way our relationship reflects your doxa glory, give them that capacity to reflect your glory to a watching world. And how Jesus and the Father are one is a, a vast and complex subject, but perhaps closest to the surface is how different they were. You're like, but they're both God. They're two eternally coexistent members of a triune Godhead. Yes, marked by their vast differences. God dwelling in unapproachable light. Jesus being the man who was approachable by the leper. God containing the universe in the palm of his hand. Jesus having the palm of his hand nailed to a cross by the people he thought of. God saying, if I were hungry or thirsty, like I'd tell you, I need nothing from you. Jesus got raised, burped, fed and provided for by humans. How vastly different the expressions of the eternal Godhead are the Father and the Son. And Jesus said, the way that we bridge that universe of chasm and show them that we are one, Give them the glory of God to bridge the universe-wide chasms that divide them to show what we're really like, to be who they really are, to reflect the doxa, the glory of God in the image of God they bear. Unity is only meaningful in the context of difference. Unity is only meaningful in the context of difference. Think about it. There is this great temptation, especially when times are hard. A temptation towards sameness. I'm going to run where it's comfortable. The way that we're all eating more comfort food, we kind of want comfort community. There's a temptation to run home to mama and go where it's safe and go where everyone looks like us and where everyone prefers what we prefer, where everyone dresses like us, where everyone likes the instruments just so and not the other. It's work. It's a battle to be one. What kind of gluttons for punishment are we coming together across all these divides as if church in the 21st century isn't already an endangered species? And we're trying what? To be half Democrat and half Republican? How are we even trying to do that? There's a temptation to go where everybody not only thinks like you and identifies politically the way you do and bashes the candidate you bash. Come on, admit it, you do it but where they're going to stand up and congratulate you for being like them. They're going to welcome you with open arms. If they're for Jesus, listen, we're for them. But I'm saying Jesus has given us this hard road to walk. Unity is only meaningful in the context of difference. We only get to experience unity when we got to figure out how to come together and talk with somebody who we disagree with or who looks different than us, or who understands the differences in the way we look differently than we do or who's richer, or poorer, or older, or younger, or cooler, or less cool. See, in our differences, unity is possible. 
Unity out of homogeny is a feel-good exercise, but it's practically meaningless. Does that show the world the glory of God that a bunch of young Republicans can get together and be young Republicans? I'm glad for them to get together, but the glory of God is revealed when we choose against the centrifugal force that pulls us apart to come together and fight the fight to be one. Listen first, speak second, agree to disagree cordially, respect one another's understandings, places in life, differences, learn from each other, file down our rough edges. That reveals the glory of God. I am in them. We'll close here. And you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them even as you love me. You see what Jesus just did there? He took our unity from strictly a revelation of the glory among ourselves, a reflection of worship back to God, viable expressions of the glory of God, though they be, and he weaponized it. Do you see it? Jesus weaponized unity in the weapons of righteousness sense. He said, may you give them such perfect unity that the world would know that you sent me, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that the world may know how much you love them. We're about three simple things here at Denver United, living with Jesus, living with family, and living on mission. And see what Jesus does here in John 17 in this prayer right at the end of his earthly life. Is he says, to live with Jesus is to live in family. If you want to be with me and be like me, I want you to know that being like me is being one across a vast array of difference. To live with Jesus is to live in family. And to live in family to live in authentic Christ community, to fight the battle to be one is to live on mission. Because before we hand out one meaningful backpack, our love for one another from across this city and across the world of thought and experience, that's what shows the city of Denver that Jesus is the real thing and that God so loved the world. So this is what we're going to talk about over the next four weeks. We're going to unpack this idea, the integration of living with Jesus, living in family, and living on mission. And friends, this is a, this is a path less traveled, even for the church. Like, I have so much love and so much respect for every expression of church of which I've had the privilege of being a part, and God has used each one from my 
infancy until now to teach me about himself and grow me in his righteousness and in his purpose for me. So this isn't about being better than anyone else. This is about in our lap around the track, going low and asking Jesus, what does it mean to be your church? How do you want to use us? Because what's happening here as we fight to be one across the political aisle. And that fight's only going to get more real over the next few months with an election coming. As we fight to be one across the racial divide. As we fight to be one across every spectrum of society that would tell us our place is at one end or the other with people that look like us. As we fight this battle to be won, not only are we going to grow with our life in Jesus and find the fulfillment in this life that He asked us to provide for one another by living in family, but we're going to show this city the glory of God, this city that now more than ever feels its desperate need for hope. Amen? Would you all stand with me? If you're at home, stand with us too. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're amazed by Jesus. Man, you did all things well. Always said the right thing. You loved everyone. You set us an example. And you made it possible for us to follow. Would you help us on this road? God, many of us, I feel weary, weary of wearing a mask, weary of everyone having an opinion about everything, (laughs) weary of having my own opinions and them not prevailing, weary of tension, weary of struggle, weary of injustice and oppression, weary brokenness, weary of division. Jesus, we come back to you. Would you build your church in us? If the deal is still on, we re-up. May the gates of hell not prevail and the gates of global pandemic and the gates of economic recession the gates of unemployment, the gates of loneliness, depression, addiction, isolation, the gates of injustice, segregation, the gates of superiority, self-righteousness and condescension. May they not prevail. Jesus, may you prevail. Would you give us, this family, your glory, that we might show Denver that we might show Denver that you're the real thing and that you love them so much that you gave your life for them. And may we find comfort and encouragement from you through one another in the process. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Love you all. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 